Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, as promised, we're looking today at more Holst. You'll recall in our last episode, we marched through Holst's first suite, or military band. And so it's only natural that we move right from number one to number two, the second suite, or military band, to see what else Holst had up his green sleeves. <laughs> uh, spoilers for later. Anyway, the suite was written in 1911, but it didn't get to debut until 1922. Apparently, at the time of its writing, Holst actually became very involved in a production of the opera The Fairy Queen, um, and that unfortunately took up a lot of his time, and this poor suite was simply forgotten. However, in 1921, Holst was commissioned to write a new suite. And rather than go through all of that work again, he just dusted this one off, tidied it up, and sent it off to be performed. Quite clever of him. (laughs) And since then, it has definitely seen its fair share of performances. Like its predecessor, the first suite, the second suite is a favorite with the high school and collegiate band programs. This is again likely due to the ingenuity with which Holst wrote for band and the overall lack of more early band standards. But again, its popularity should not be a negative attribute. So let's look into the music and see just why it has endured for 100 years! Indeed, as an aside before we move to the music, if you want to learn more about Holst himself, we did our full bio episode just previously, once before. Go back and take a listen to that. And be sure to share with a friend. And now that we have heard the first suite, and that's fresh in your mind, you can compare it to the second suite, which, unlike the first Chaconne, this suite opens in a predictably march-like manner, perhaps due to its connotation with military band. However, it's probably not like any march you've ever heard before. It's almost quaint, and that's because the whole suite is based on different folk songs. Our march is in A-B-C-A-B form. (laughs) Ab-cab. <laughs> no one says that. <laughs> the A theme we hear starts out as just five upward notes in the major scale played in the brass and then the woodwinds. Honestly, personal opinion, this might not be a really strong start, and it might be one of the reasons people kind of write this work off as being more elementary or simplistic sounding. But if we stick with it, we find these five notes are actually the start of our first folk song, which is Glorishears, which is apparently a portmanteau of glorious years. This is also a type of folk song that is known as a Morris dance. However, what elevates it into a more march-like style is the percussion. There are snare drums and cymbals, which are very iconic sounds within marching bands. 
section we come to starts with an unusual instrument, the euphonium. The euphonium is kind of like a small tuba, and it plays a new folk song for us, this time Swansea Town. As a side note here, I bet we just pissed off a lot of euphonium players by saying it's just a small tuba. <laughs> Maybe we should do a little episode devoted to the euphonium. Only if enough angry euphonium players reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook <laughs> or email coffeehasclassical at gmail.com. You hear that, euphonium players? Tell us what we should talk about. Euphonium players specifically. Why is it not just a small tuba? What other repertoire is there for euphonium that's public domain and analyzable on this podcast format? <laughs> to be clear. Stay tuned for that possible future episode. Indeed, so anyway. Now, back on track to keep it moving along. The trumpets have persistent downbeats in the background as we go through this new folk song. And after that lovely solo, which from experience, the euphonium players take a great deal of pride in and they come to rehearsal prepared for, for once. once. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, after that, the whole band chimes in, and we really get that military band flair. The C section is very different from our previous A and B sections. We both transition into a minor key, as well as get a time change into 6-8. And a big welcome back to the saxophone section. They, along with the clarinets, take off with the third folk song, Claudie Banks, which is an Irish tune. It is interesting to change the time signature in the middle of a march, though in a concert performance the main struggle is to not let your ensemble slow down. Just imagine if you were racing into battle with this march and suddenly it sounded like your fife and drum were playing a jig. One fun rhythm to point out here is the so-called Scotch Snap. So this is where, when we're playing in a triplet feel, such as 6-8 time, instead of the lilting quarter, eighth note pattern, so long, short, we reverse that to be eighth note quarter, short, long. So it essentially puts the emphasis on the offbeat because that long note carries much more weight. And to round out the march, the A and B sections are then repeated. Yes, that means our favorite euphoniest gets a second solo. <laughs> And then we have the fine at the end of the second B section. Well, that was straightforward. Let's jump along to the second movement, quote, song without words. Though, of course, there are no words for this piece for band, the melody is actually based on a song with words, I love my love. 
Now recall we heard this melody last week in the first suite as well. Perhaps here it's a bit more somber in this iteration though, as we set the tone with minor chords being inverted throughout the band. The melody is first introduced by the oboe or clarinet. The solo is technically written in both parts, and one or both instruments could play it. In this case, the Air Force band we are listening to here has chosen the clarinet. Obviously the right choice. Yes, can you imagine trying to tune B-flat clarinet and oboe? Absolute nightmares. And actually, I don't have to imagine it because we've we've been there. It's hard. <laughs> but after the initial playthrough of the melody, the trumpets get to take over. Also sometimes a tuning nightmare. <laughs> uh, here, Holst borrows a bit from his own book by having flowing up and down patterns that sweep through the woodwinds much like he did in the first suite. However, it doesn't have as sweet of a sound. It's used a bit more to show us the different timbres of the band rather than the homogenous timbres that we heard in our last episode. Asa, do you have a preference? I I don't think so. I found I think that both of these are are excellent showcases of what the wind band can do. Having all of its different flavors on display here in contrast to how well it can work as a team. Hmm. Well, I think I personally just prefer the way the first suite sounds in this instance, but both are good. To finish out the movement, Holst throws us a fun little coda on the end. The clarinet, saxophones, and euphonium play sad, solo, downward lines that really bring the mood to a quiet and almost unsettling finish. But not for long, because in the third movement, Holst slaps us right in the face. (laughs) This is The Song of the Blacksmith, and it is written in a very pointillistic manner that is meant to emulate a blacksmith's hammer. These first few rhythmic chords in the brass also sound a little bit dissonant, but surprise, they're actually perfect fifths. So what makes them sound dissonant is the parallel movement between these fifths. It's a sound that you kind of think of for Gregorian chant, for example. But this may make our brain think that it's actually dissonant because it moves so quickly and that harmony can actually be mistakenly remembered by our brains and accidentally turned into a tritone. It's a very interesting psychological phenomenon. 
It's the devil's work, the devil's tone, making us believe these false sounds. <laughs> but the melody itself, the song of the blacksmith, is actually quite jolly. But it catches us off guard as well, coming in a little earlier than we think it should. The melody here utilizes a bit of the scotch snap, with the faster note being on the downbeat and the long coming in the middle of the beat. And watch out Verdi with your anvil chorus or Mahler with your hammer. There's a new drum in town. In the score, Hulse literally writes for the percussionist to play an anvil, but in practicality, a brake drum can actually be used instead. And what is a brake drum, you may ask? Well, it's a drum made out of a brake from a car. Uh, just the, the brake drum, literally the brake <laughs> drum is used as a brake drum. Um, it's the big hunk of metal that makes a big noise. Um, I've also sometimes <laughs> seen like rims used, like wheel rims and not the brake mm. drum itself. Yes, the brake drum itself are... I think is quite heavy, whereas the rims are more light. A little bit lighter, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, really it's quite an iconic sound. Really anything that makes a sound. big clang. Yes. Yes. <laughs> big hunk of metal makes a big noise. It's <laughs> all you need to know. It's all the percussionist cares about. It, that's all they all ever care about. Sorry, percussionists. Please you can join, email us. You can join the euphonium players in your in your email. Make a group email. <laughs> yes, we don't want a bunch of emails. We just want one big group email. Everyone get together. <laughs> After a while, the background rhythm doesn't really seem as jarring as we initially thought it was. And eventually you just kind of get in the feel. When the whole band comes in, rather than just the brass, we're really just kind of grooving along. Now Asa, last week when we were done recording, we were talking about this suite. You said something like, you have to count it, but at the same time you can't count it. You just have to feel it. Yeah, so the actual time signature of this is... 3-4 into 4-4, four, four, so common time, and it switches back and forth with rests placed at the end of the 3-4 measure, but then there's pickup notes into the 4-4. Four, four. So it's it's really interesting to count, and if you're listening to this for the first time without the score in front of you, it's probably difficult to find the downbeat, what you would commonly think of as a downbeat, and that's a struggle for many newer groups as well. I think it's one of the reasons why the first time I played this in high school band, early in high school band, our band director cut the third movement from the piece entirely. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Cause he didn't think that we could do it. I think he was right at that point to be honest with you. Um, but it's, it's but just where's one of those... your opportunity for growth. Uh, the opportunity for growth was next year in the higher level ensemble. Ah, Okay. <laughs> uh, when I got into that ensemble, and we actually played the whole suite all the way through. Um, but it is something that, especially for newer players, it's harder to it's harder to count because although it is mixed time signatures, it 
it's harder to count like mixed time signatures because the emphasis is on different beats than you might think. So, yes, you have to count it, but you really do have to feel it. Mm-hmm. And just like instinctively understand where the, you know, where those beats fall. You must embody the blacksmith and then you will know where to put exactly. the anvil. <laughs> exactly. Well, you put the hammer on the anvil, the anvil's on the ground. Okay, fine. <laughs> I am obviously no blacksmith. <laughs> no. Anyway, right at the end of this movement, seemingly out of nowhere, the brass ends with a brilliantly voiced chord that is in our final key of the piece, F major. And much like the first suite, We'll move right on from here into our final movement without pause. And of course, this final movement is the Fantasia on the Dargason. Unlike our previous melodies, this isn't technically a folk song, but rather a dance that was published in The Dancing Master in the 17th century. It opens first with an alto tenor sax solo duet, and literally there is nothing else going on in the band. It's just the saxophones. Or at least that's how it's usually performed, the alto and tenor sax. Technically, it should be a trio with an alto clarinet. So recall last week we threw some light on the subject of the E-flat clarinet, and of note, that was the E-flat soprano clarinet. There is also an E-flat alto clarinet that is altogether a different beast. This clarinet is pitched between the normal B-flat soprano and the B-flat bass clarinet, probably the two most common. But the ranges on both the bass and soprano are so good that they overlap completely with whatever the alto would be playing, so it's a fairly obsolete instrument. Now, a more practical reason that we don't generally find the alto clarinet in ensembles is because they are very rare and tend to be quite pricey for their niche uses. Most high schools do not own an alto clarinet, and if they do, from experience, it is generally garbage. (laughs) And most clarinetists also don't have their own. It's much more common for a college to own an alto to lend or rent out for these cases, but the sad fact is the alto is also kind of poorly designed mechanically and often just doesn't work properly. (laughs) They really are just terrible instruments. This is not just the band directors instilling this in our brains. This is from real clarinet players. This is from actual clarinet player experience. It's We've tried playing the alto. We have tried. I think both of us, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And if you're... (laughs) An alto clarinet main, you can join the percussionists and the euphoniums. <laughs> and tell us how wrong we and are. tell us how wrong we are. We are just lining up the enemies today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Well, getting Let's back, get back to, to it. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to the meat of the melody here. This is what can be called a circular melody, meaning that the end flows right back into the beginning. And this is thanks to the eighth note pickup that is at the beginning of the melody. It lends itself to be at the end of the phrase as well.
and as the melody rolls along, each group of instruments that play the melody continues as background, and so we keep building the texture with each iteration, and we add sections until the entire band is playing. Holst then preps us for the next melody coming in by giving a slightly more minor tone to the background harmony. And then our next and final folk song that we will be hearing in the suite is a very familiar one, and that is Green Sleeves. It's very ingenious how Hulse adds this new melody into the mix. First, he actually starts the first measure of Green Sleeves on the third measure of the Dargison melody. And it's obviously much slower than the Dargison. And how Holst accomplishes this is by writing the Dargison in 6-8, but green sleeves in 3-4. Now let's get into a bit of conducting practice here. 6-8 is usually conducted in groups of two, Obviously, 3-4 is usually in groups of 3. However, we're not going to be conducting both, although I've seen people try. Can you imagine, Allison, maybe each hand conducting a different rhythm? You know, I tried to tap that out, you know, like palms on the table style while I was writing this. It was hard. Yeah. So what usually occurs is a conductor will slide into a one-beat pattern on the downbeat of each bar thus just showing the overall downbeats of each measure and leaving the ensemble's members to actually have to keep time and, gasp, count for themselves. Oh my, keeping time for ourselves? How will we do it? Never. Now the other <laughs> thing that this tends to accomplish is keeping the melody moving, is keeping the, the energy flowing into the piece. When you're thinking about the downbeats of each bar instead of each individual beat, um... It's kind of a mental thing, but it, mm -hmm. it, it it helps keep the energy up. It basically drives your entire goal of each measure forward to the next measure. Right, which is perfect for this for this piece, which is very, very driving. Exactly. So as these two melodies move through different sections of the band, we sometimes get the green sleeves bubbling up to the fore, and sometimes the Dargison takes center stage, and it's overall just a really lovely wash of sound. To keep the interest, Holst varies the texture of the Dargison. So rather than really feeling the large one-beat pattern, once he's done with green sleeves for a while, he actually has the brass and then percussion show us very definitively the two beats per measure in 6-8 time. To put in just a little unrest, Holst uses a chromatic rumble in the background. You can hear the woodwinds moving around, and unless you're listening closely to what they're doing, it just sounds a little unresolved in the melody. Mm -hmm. 
chromaticism is almost giving a Percy Granger vibe. Yeah. Another uh, very famous band composer. Yes. Oh, I think he's not in the public domain, though. Unfortunately. We then hear more instances of Holst hiding the Darkison. It's relegated to the background, while more important chords and then green sleeves again is brought forward by the brass. And through all of this, Holst is slowly bringing the energy back down as more and more of the band starts to rest. We then get a very distant sounding rendition of the Dargason with a tuba solo. This is possibly the first time we have welcomed the tuba to the coffee house as well for a such a prominent role. Yes. Wow, we really have seen a lot of new fun instruments by looking at Holst in these past and few the alto clarinet. Ugh. well anyway we then end the whole thing with the most cheeky duet in the world it's a tuba and piccolo duet and we hear that before finally ending with a military band style stinger ending it's really quite a fun piece. I think that the the Fantasia on the Dargason is one of my favorite pieces of band literature. <laughs> I think it's excellent, and it gets stuck in my head more than potentially any piece of music. Oh, really? Yeah. It's your go-to waiting music. It yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty in there. <laughs> Just whenever, whenever I'm, you know, just doing nothing else, suddenly my brain goes. Well, now that you've said that, I'm afraid my brain's gonna do the same thing. Yep, it's gonna be all evening long for both of us. Oh boy! Sometimes when I get songs stuck in my head, they follow me into my dreams, and I'm just listening to them literally all night in my head. But I guess it's Holst. It's not a bad thing to have stuck in your head. There are far worse that we could do. It is. I think that's one of the things that I really like about Holst as a composer is he has, he's got such strong melodies in his pieces. Um, And so they're very memorable, all of them from, you know, the planet suite, for example, Jupiter and Mars. I was just singing Jupiter in my head as you were saying that. (laughs) Yeah. Like Jupiter being the National Geographic theme from way back when and just being so another prominent part of my my head music (laughs) stuck in my earworms. Oh, Asa, if only we could listen to your playlist all the time like you do. My earworms playlist. (laughs) (laughs) So that, I think, is all we have for you today for our uh, look at Holst's second suite. For military band. Possibly a bit campy, a little cheeky, but always fun. Always fun, yes. And you know, hopefully you've enjoyed our Holst episodes. A whole host of episodes here. <laughs> <laughs> whole host of fun music. 
maybe we'll return to Holst again in the future, as we are wont to do with some of our most admired composers. Those planets are in fact calling. <laughs> we will see if we can public domain those away. Yeah, I did just, I re, well, because I remembered that Jupiter existed and now I want to listen to it again, so. Um. All right, well, we better wrap this up <laughs> so we can all go listen to Jupiter. Listener, I think that's your cue to go listen to Jupiter after you've listened to the second suite. Exactly, and also after you have shared what you share this podcast with a friend or a family member, drop reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. All the good social pumping things that we humbly request that you do. Just go find us and share us. That's all we ask. Find us and share us. That's it. For the Coffee House <laughs> Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The second suite for Military Band was performed by the Air Combat Command Heritage of America Band. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>